Hello and welcome back to First Principles, the fortnightly leadership podcast from the Ken. We promise you candid, reflective and insightful conversations with some of India's best-known founders and today with episode 15 we have exactly that. I'm Rohan Dharmakumar your host and today we're speaking with Shan Kadavil, the co-founder and CEO of Fresh to Home, one of the leaders in India's online meat and fish space. Kadavil cut his teeth in Silicon Valley in the 2000s, building and scaling multiple businesses including gaming pioneer Zynga. In 2015, he chanced upon the concept of what is now Fresh to Home after meeting Matthew Joseph, an erstwhile fish exporter who had started a fairly basic online operation called Sea to Home. Seven years and over $250 million in funding later, Cudderville runs an organization that borrows culture and processes heavily from companies like Zynga while adding lots of original learnings from the inevitable school of hard knocks. Is all NPS really just BS? Are KER, NER and RER better metrics? Should employees be okay with too much independence and chaos? How can CEOs encourage their teams to think clearly about bets and hypotheses? All this and more in yet another masterclass on building and scaling innovative businesses in one of the world's most lucrative but also unforgiving markets, India. Let's start. Shan, I have in my hand a copy of the business plan that you wrote for Fresh to Home, though I must, I must assume that it wasn't called Fresh to Home back then, dated back to 2016. And the first plan for 2016 says, clone Matthew. What does that mean? So, so this was actually at the time when we were called Fresh to Home. Matthew my co-founder and I and you know seven of us uh, so eight co-founders started together I am Whoa, eight uh, co-founders eight co-founders yeah I mean we've been working with each other for 20 years across multiple different companies that I've started or I've been instrumental in starting uh, I'm an entrepreneur so I've done gigs in the valley uh, in San Francisco as the enterprise CEO for support.com I've created companies like Dibox which I've later sold in the cybersecurity space and then i was one of the early employees and cxos at uh, you know zynga where i used to make games you know i was general manager on farmville and i also the founder of the india zynga which then became quite large right so we run so you've had a lot of talented entrepreneurs wannapreneurs like you know working with you along these years yeah i think uh, a huge amount of people and you know many of them have started really large companies uh, so and uh, i'm quite grateful for that opportunity so we'll come back to that what's clone matthew so cloning matthew so matthew uh, and i did not really meet until uh, i was buying fish i relocated uh, my early years were in the valley and then i Sorry, relocated you said matthew's your co-founder matthew's my co-founder current co-founder but he had started a company called seed to home 
way back in uh, 2011. So it was quite ahead of its time, and it was uh, a new thing for a fish exporter, right? You don't expect fish exporters to do e-grocery. He was shipping fish and similar to this fresh to home uh, lines from Cochin to Bangalore and Delhi. I used to be a customer of his time, and so was I. I must tell you, <laughs> that's great. So the product was amazing quality, uh, but he couldn't take it forward because uh, running uh, e-grocery or online venture was quite ahead of its time, uh, especially in those days. So and I yeah, I, and I agree because I used to wonder back as a customer that how were they making this work because the promise back then was. you get the fish today that was you know caught the day before or sometimes even the very same morning etc and i always used to wonder how is this feasible how is this economical how is this logistically but as a customer of course like was happy to continue buying it is amazing the supply chain and the quality that he had perfected and he is a fish exporter so he understands his fish really well right and he's from that area where you know they've done 25 to 30 years of experience doing that uh, the entire business and uh, i'm a malayali i like my fish and uh, rice and once i couldn't get enough of once it. again so am i <laughs> good to hear that two malus in a conversation so uh, once i couldn't get that i figured out the only way uh, my kids and my wife was quite unhappy uh, it was really hard to get that kind of quality product uh so the only logical alternative at that time was to find out who this matthew was so and he was not anywhere on social networks or any other way so then i looked up uh, and i found out the website designing company that had done his old uh, site seed to home i think it was called transmedia or something of that sort i called those guys up and then figured out and reached out to matthew and i told him that hey listen i i want to angel fund you so he was not ready to accept it angel funds because that was not really the kind of he's not aware of I'm that kind of thing i'm assuming because yeah. as a businessman he yeah. was like look i mean i spend what i can afford and i make profits why do i need angel funding <laughs> that's correct so it's exactly his is sentiment at the time and then but i did somehow convince him uh, i'm good at convincing people and uh, uh, we started uh, another venture call us fresh to home so now back to your cloning matthew uh, so this was the time from a business standpoint we figured out that there was hyper local was in uh, you know in style at that time and we had Pepper Tabs and Zopnows and others. Now many of these companies were not successful because the margins were razor thin, right? You talk about you know three hundred to four hundred rupees average order value, and you're talking about ten to twelve percent gross margin. So there's nothing to really play with for covering the costs of delivery, packaging, and everything else beyond that. So, but I saw Matthew was able to offer really amazing, uh, high quality seafood, the ones that you and I liked. but at 40 to 50% gross margins now he was able to do this in few categories right prawns and squid and cuttlefish and others across six different harbors that he were there so he would wake up at 3 a.m in the morning and he would then call these harbors and you know find out what is the rate of prawns here in and and he was in alappi cochin that belt so across those belts and uh, then he would say buy x amounts of these or y amount literally his day would start at 2:30 a.m. Uh, because the auctions would start at 3:30 to 4 a.m. and then by 6 or 7 he would purchase it and that's the product that you would get next day which is shipped by train in those days back to bangalore so it was like 24 hours and it was incredibly fresh but it was not scalable to go to like a huge amount of user base right so when we started fresh to home why 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 was it not scalable because of two reasons one the kind of variety that you would require about 2000 skus you cannot get that in like six harbors because india has about 
5,000 harbors, and you need to cover at least 100 to 200 harbors to kind the long tail variety that you like. Fresh to Home is really known as a really good destination, especially for seafood. And that's because of the coverage that we have. And secondly, the whole business has to work. So fundamentally, uh, bottom line, we are now fully bottom line positive. And for it to work, you really need a 40% blended margin, which means that there are certain categories that you really need to get that margin, which you can only do if you cut off the middleman and you leverage price arbitrage, which means you have to go to like 300, 400 different harbors. So as we sat together, uh, the first thing that we wanted to do in the business plan, and this was like a and real business plans are typically done on a piece of paper is what my ex-boss Pinkus, who's the founder of uh, Zynga, has taught me, and not on Excel. And our first... Why? Because I think the clarity of thought that you get and the ability to sort of look ahead along does not come in Excel. We are all... I'm a product manager, right? I've you know, pretty much done. Yeah, the first thing that comes to your mind when someone says anything is, let me open an Excel and put it in, right? Which is my inclination as well. But I have learned over the years that you have to first look at it, you know, a little bit more higher level and then compress the thought across a time frame, which you can't do in Excel. It has to be on a paper. So literally this, the paper that uh, you're holding now is the paper that is, you know, framed in our office, which is something that we had created in 2016. And the first part of it is how do we scale what Matthew does by cloning him by using technology. So, you know, fast forward, we created a, a patent called as Commodities Exchange, which allowed a fisherman or farmer to auction their produce with us in an electronic fashion across, you know, 300 to 400 different harbors. And that's really the genesis using of a mobile. Using a mobile app. Oh, in the so early the, days, it was SMS. Got it. And then so over a period of time, Matthew it became... Matthew here represents what, what exactly are you cloning? His... His networks, his operational style, what were you hoping to clone? So there were two elements to it. And then, uh, so let me just take you back on how the yeah. ecosystem works. So fish is caught in uh, auctions, right? So that's how it's sold. It's illegal to buy fish directly so off the boats. I'm not in Malayalam, they're called lelam. They're called lelams. And then the people who do that are called taragans in Kerala coast. Yeah. Right? And they are the patidars in the you know, Gujarat coast. They're called different names across that's different right. harbors. There is a bit of a social hierarchy at play on who goes to the fishing and who does the auctioning and all that stuff. But fundamentally, the uh, auctions uh, marketplaces are large and it's very fragmented because one, the fish as a category is very large, right? It's 1% of India's GDP. And I don't say that lightly because agricultural output is about what 8 or 9% of GDP and this is 1% of GDP. And uh, it's actually a bigger market than even poultry, right? Poultry is about 20% of the overall total addressable market and 60, 65% is fish. Now, because of this large amount of fragmentation, if you're in Bangalore... I, I, I must say, I did not know that, that the, the scale difference between poultry and fish was that big. Yeah. You're saying it's like 3x. It's 3x. And then also it's 15 million fishermen. Uh, so it is a very, very large population, right? And I, I, I get goosebumps when I talk about this to an investor in Dubai because the size of the fishermen in India is actually twice the population of the entire UAE, right? So it is a, it is an incredibly large market. But uh, All right, but so I was asking you about what aspect of Matthew were you cloning? So uh, the, the way that fish is caught is through this auctions. Now auctions, there is incredible price difference between one harbor to the other. So I'll give you an example of the supply chain to Bangalore. So if you're buying fish from one of the wet markets in Bangalore, Johnson Market or HAL Market, or from a supermarket which then buys from these markets and gives to you, that would have been caught three days back in a harbor in Cochin or you know Tamil Nadu or other places, right? Let's assume if you're in Cochin. 
in and around Cochin alone, there are 70 harbors, right? And because of the sheer fragmentation uh, of this incredible number of hours, you have to rely on a middleman. So the auctions happen at 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. in the market. And at that point of time, the next, so from the, the agent will buy from there. There'll be another auction, which is in the end of the day in Chambakara market in, in Cochin city, which is where the, the next level of middlemen from Shivaji Nagar in Bangalore would go there and buy. And then they would, uh, by the time the auction gets over, then the morning auction in Shivaji Nagar would get over. So it would not, so if you're on Tuesday, the Wednesday's auction, you will not be able to sell it. So it has to come on Thursday morning's auction. And on Thursday morning's auction, it would come to Shivaji Nagar at 4 a.m. You should try actually going to Shivaji Nagar at 4 a.m. You will see the auction. And that auction would be the third auction. So you're talking about at least three or four levels of middlemen. And there is at least 30 or 40% markup in this entire at process. Stage. At each stage. There is no cold chain. So it is all transported in lorries and they'll add a little ice and uh, some ammonia or formalin or something else to extend the shelf life. This is really the era <clears throat> that we were in, right? So Matthew was able to cut short this entire thing by going direct to the fishermen and farmers. He would put a person to participate in the first level auction in any of these harbors. Now, because of the limitations on cost of putting people, trucks and so on, you can only be there in five or six harbors because you can't go beyond that. Then your cost of transport or your cost of logistics will outweigh the benefit that you get in price. And uh, But there is a mismatch in demand and supply. So when there is a Indian fishermen use traditional fishing boats, right? These are like two tons or three tons fishing boats. And you're at the mercy of rain or wind or whatever it is. The supply is always a constant. You uh, so, Supply is very erratic because you can't know what you catch. You may have a huge shawl of sardines that you catch someday. You'll have less on another day and so on. But demand is constant. The same set of middlemen will buy from the harbor. If I were to use an analogy here, it's sort of like the demand for electricity versus the generation of, let's say, either like, you know, solar power or something where the vagaries being, is the sun out on a particular day or That's not? That's correct. Exactly the same. Got it. And it's very different from European countries where they do large trawlers that catch, scoop the earth, right? So that's a very different model. In India, uh, because the demand is constant, when you have a large supply, there'll be a distress sale. Price will shoot down. So if you've got a huge amount of sardines, there's not as much buyers because it's extremely perishable. You'll have to sell it at a lower price. But the same product in an hour away in a different harbor, you would have caught medium catch and then the demand is the same, which means price will shoot up. So between two harbors, you could see the same sardines that sold at 100 rupees in the auction and 200 rupees in the and auction. And these harbors are how far apart typically? It'll be basically 30, 40 kilometers or 100 kilometers maximum. That's the max. There are 5,000 harbors in India, so it's incredibly large. Now, what uh, we did is really we cloned Matthew by figuring out the style in which he was operating by giving an app to the fishermen. And these fishermen are not very literate, right? So for that matter, uh, creating the app is one thing, but actually socializing with the fishermen is a huge different challenge. And the fishermen would then auction in a local harbor, in this example, 100 rupees sardines. They would then auction locally at uh, 100 rupees. And once the price is set, they will then bid with us on the app at 120. They'll always try to get a 20% higher price. At the same time, in a different harbor where it's 200 rupees, they will bid with us at 250. So you're not competing for price discovery. You're saying that price discovery happens at the local harbor and whatever is the price discovered, you are offering a 20% premium on that. Yeah, price discovery happens at the local levels for that product, but geographically, we get the arbitrage. And uh, it's a win-win, no? because the local, uh, in this uh, example, we would pick the 120 rupees and the local fishermen would get a 20% higher price, but geographically, we get the arbitrage. 
Now, this is done at a very large scale right now, right? And uh, because of that, we have you know thousands of these price bids and ten thousands of these price that actually comes to us in Give a month. Give me a sense of that, like you know how many we will get on the average between ten thousand to twenty thousand uh, auction bids in a month. And because of that, uh, you can't use a human being for the problem. So we created a patent which revolved around figuring out how to buy from these dis- you know different harbors. We have a used patent. And uh, that allows price uh, discovery based on this bidding process. So it's a reverse auction essentially. And because the fishermen are not literate, the app does not use text. It either you have to scroll through the pictures and then click on the picture and then you have to put a price. Or the camera can automatically detect the kind of fish it is. And then uh, using computer vision, it will tell you what kind of fish it is and they have to put a price. Then they will get either a red or a green on the app. Red means don't buy, green means buy. So and then the algorithm will use a number of parameters, right? One is distance from the harbor, how much logistics costs are involved, and price would be a great big factor, and all of that stuff. So that's how we've cloned Matthew using technology. It's a win-win for both the fishermen and us, and uh, we are able to operate a really healthy business because of that. I've seen fishermen returning to harbor in Kerala, and it's a really fascinating sight. A question that I have is: Is this auctioning happening after they land at the harbor, or I've I maybe I've read stories etc. Also about how why does the auctioning need to happen post return? Can it not happen while they are en route to the harbor from the sea? So how does it happen actually? It comes post. They have to physically bring the boats and they never bring in the material back to the auction floor. It's illegal uh, by the Indian government rules to auction it before it comes there because ah. that's the way that a corporate can exploit fishermen, right? Here, this is a democratic price discovery. In fact, if you've been to larger harbors, it would always be guarded by CISF, and it's just a it's a national uh, you know uh, a treasure of India, right? Mm. And its volumes are high. You're talking about 10 million metric tons of fish, and uh, that's we are the second largest producer and consumer of fish in the world. So it's very very large volumes, right? So, did you manage? How long did you did you manage to clone Matthew? I'm assuming the answer is yes. <laughs> One thing that we did not realize uh, is that cloning Matthew is not something you can do with technology alone, right? Because uh, we got the technology right. It took a year or almost two years to get the technology right. Once we got the technology right, we then uh, underestimated what it took to actually go and sell this technology to a fisherman. If you ever interacted with fishermen, especially in the early days, when they don't use ca- they use cash, right? They don't use uh, they don't have bank accounts. Most of them actually earn a lot of money, but then they are drunk and then they throw it all on alcohol, and the women run the household. The, the socio-economic fabric is so different that it's very difficult to crack it. We did crack it, and it took us uh, instead. We thought it would take two years, but it took us seven years or six to seven years. And uh, we had to crack it with a team that was led by Matthew because at the end of the day, it's not just technology, but it is the relationships. It's actually talking to them in the same language, you know, using a lot of you know social, personal connections to get there. So similar to how an Uber or Ola would have a feet on street to, you know, recruit the taxi drivers, we have the same for the fishermen. And so we've cracked it eventually, but it was much harder and complex than you thought. If you've ever been to a, a large harbor, it would have 6,000 people. Now, if they love you, they really love you. But if you do some panga with them, you won't come back alive. This is essentially how all harbors work, right? So it's not really a, it's a, it's a different beast that required. And without Matthew as a co-founder, we could not do that. So it's a trust and relationship game with your suppliers in that sense. Yeah. Isn't that the case with any business, right? And mm. it's the same thing, except that you're dealing with people who haven't really seen an organized behavior. So it was a harder nut to crack. 
right? Uh, the number that you had here for 2016 was $2 million. Um, I'm assuming you hit $2 million. No, this business plan was written in 2016 when we were $2 million annualized. What number was extrapolated That's was... That's right. For 2019, yeah. there is a 10x growth uh, estimated to $20 million. Yeah. So what? Uh, so the business plans are funny because you assume a number of different variables. How did you yeah arrive at this ten so x? This was purely creative accounting. Uh, so <laughs> we just assumed it was hard because we we couldn't really figure out whether the size of TAM was. We knew the size of TAM was incredibly large, but we didn't know how many of this would actually be accessible in an online fashion. Sorry, I mean, you mentioned the word TAM, and this is one of my. Um, pet peeves right when you were fundraising for fresh to home i'm yeah. sure you must have met vcs yeah did you get asked about the tam nobody believed us so we told everybody that the actual data was so high we've met almost all of the premium uh, vcs in the early days and i had a good pedigree having done multiple different companies so i didn't really require the bootstrap cash i had to bootstrap myself but that said, nobody really believed us. Why? I mean, why would nobody believe that in a country like India, with so much of a coastline and a culture and history of like, you know, fish eating, the total addressable market for those buying uh, or I think there's like, a little bit of a, a, a shell shock from some of the hyper-local companies that had gone bust because we had at the time had some of the most premium VCs have invested in these companies then. And uh, they were quite uh, negative on grocery in general, right? So they all and kept, you were actually picking even yeah, we were like picking you know like the highest niche of that that's grocery, right, which must be kept fresh which must and be it's kept perishable. Fresh. It's perishable, and it was just incredibly hard. And it was a hard thing at that time. But we did have a lot of strong believers uh, from the U.S. community. Uh, so we had uh, Peter. Who was your first Mark institutional Peter investor? Thiel. Who was your first institutional investor? So now it's very uh, the the word institution the, the, the institution is, is harder because these the the net worth of these people would be higher than most institutional investors. Yeah. So Pinkers and Mark Pinkers and Peter Thiel wrote the first half a million dollars check in Fresh to Home. After that, we had the CEO of Google Ventures, uh, David Crane. Then we had the CFO of Facebook. Uh, uh, it was easier to pitch to the U.S. audience than to the Indian audience. To be fair, we had Rajan Anandan who had actually uh, really so recognized. What too it interesting. Was. I mean, this is very fascinating. Why? Why was it? easier to pitch is it just a function of the fact that some of the u.s entrepreneurs for them let's say 250k or 500k usd is not a big amount to bet on a so there is that that is it that they see potential very different like wh why why do you say that because it, it's in don't you agree that it's kind of counterintuitive that it's easier to sell the vision for a business which is just inherently based on India's dynamics to someone who's not in India. Remember, this was 2015, right? When I was trying, to, when I was pitching the early days. At that point of time, the the proof point was not there in the same fashion that you would see today. It was there, but it was not. And secondly, the Indian. But VCs, that would be true for whether you're an Indian VC or well. No, but the Indian VCs were a little bit shell shocked with a number of the grocery ventures that had not really panned out. You know, I, there was at least four, five, or six that had tried to uh, do different categories at that time. So, so there was a timing seen, thing as there well. There was a timing thing as well. And uh, but the US VCs did not have that baggage, and it was easier. And also, to be fair, I knew many of these guys from my uh, early days in the Valley, right? And many of them have mentored me. I have another question here. It's also interesting that many of your or most of your initial funders were individuals and not funds. Uh, Was it easier, like, or or let, let let me rephrase myself, right? 
what was the difference to you as a founder when you were pitching to another either a founder or an individual versus a fund did you pitch to a lot of funds as well no i most of my early days was basically to individuals because i wanted to make sure my cap table at least in the early days had names that i could then take to institutions when i get there and these are some of the most premium names you can find in the valley right peter the elen pinkers and you know uh, people like that and also with in, uh, entrepreneurs did that, wrote, did that work out like you know i mean once it really well yeah it took uh, it took some time uh, it, it did need numbers and proof point because regardless of whatever tells you about uh, you know tam and numbers and so on early stage people do just based on trust right it's just bs to expect them to do based on anything else right everything else is just mm-hmm. a, how the entrepreneur will execute beyond that so uh, to have uh, really reputed entrepreneurs back you in your cap table is a huge endorsement and it really help us it continues to help us even at our current series d stage so what essentially happened with uh, if i may go back to matthew is he was running c to home c to home got shut down and then rebranded as fresh to home somewhere in the middle if i'm not mistaken as well it was right? a completely new company that we started uh, so we uh, if you look at my uh, vision document uh, the idea eventually and <laughs> this is a little bit of a smile because of the you know amazon has just invested in our last round is to be the whole foods of india and in certain categories that are in the fresh but dominated by fish and seafood and uh, so i am as read this out i'm i'm sorry to interrupt you 2016 was goal was clone matthew 2019 with a revenue 10x revenue growth uh, estimate of 20 million dollars what you've written down is we don't feed our customers what we don't feed ourselves and then 2022 again 10x growth estimate assuming 200 million dollars was whole foods of india that's correct that is really where the full circle is and uh, uh that was really the original plan right we soon realized to be the whole foods of india it's not going to be immediately practical and we had to focus on one category so we then focused on fish and meat and and we realized how big the category was whole foods doesn't operate in india what does how would you explain being whole foods of india was to someone who doesn't know that why why whole foods i think everybody we spoke to knew about whole foods it, its brand equity was very high no i'm talking about today, today like yeah. you know i mean if you were to kind of tell someone that your vision was to be the whole foods of india so in, why was in, whole foods so in important in very simple words it would be we don't feed uh, our customers what we don't feed our kids right so essentially preservative free uh, no antibiotic residue uh, if you look at the jingle that uh, i have written in my business plan it was that you know fmcg is evil and we don't do any evil because fmcg uh, in general is processed food right these are uh, food that has been designed to run in shelves for months together we don't do that we have direct distribution and the max that you would see is 24 to 36 hours hence we don't add any preservatives if you buy a kebab from us if you look at the back of the pack you will not see any e numbers there you would see e numbers in the you know from any of our competition so what's the e number e number would be like a sorbate or a phosphate or a msg or any anything that is a an preservative, additive, a preservative or, or an additive uh, a taste uh, you know a neuro uh, simulator or things like that we don't add any of that stuff one you know that's really the fundamental philosophy of how we built the brand uh and that's my personal belief as well right and after having done a number of gaming companies one of the reasons to doing this and i've had two exits as well right i've had support.com and uh, zinger uh this was not just monetary it was also about doing something with a higher impact we've spoken a lot about fresh to home 
without really covering what fresh to home is how would you explain what fresh to home is in a line <laughs> the line we already we already covered that which is that fresh to home is uh, is uh, the world's largest online fish and meat firm where you can get uh, you know uh, food that you can feed to your kids without uh, any fear in your mind of any health issues all right how do you make money like you said one of your goals was to have like a 40% blended gross margin right like today you said your revenue is somewhere of the order of i mean sorry could you just tell us how how much your revenue is today it's about 1100 crores uh annualized uh, about 130 million dollars in uh, us dollars how do you so is at a simplest level people come to your site and app buy stuff from you and that's how you make your money that's correct and on the other side of course you're buying the this uh, fish and meats from um individual either fishermen or farmers etc and then you're selling them you're making the spread in the middle that's correct so basically uh we have a fairly large margin across the platform across the stack so we operate at about 40% blended gross margins and uh input this is after wastages after discounts and everything else and we have essentially a much larger margin in fish because that's the category where we have the whole higher margins we also do a fair amount of contract farming on the platform so essentially we do a large scale uh, poultry as well as uh, you know uh, fish in poultry for example in bangalore is done in kolar uh where we have you know feed mills uh, hatcheries and the end to end vertical integration we also do reasonably large scale fish farming so we have uh, you know basa katla rohu and products like that we've got contract farming where we give feed and uh, seed which is a young fish back to fishermen and we do a guaranteed buyback and we give them like 2 lakh rupees per acre of water body that they own and we do a guaranteed buyback so we do about 10000 tons of fish and chicken in terms of farmed produce contract farmed we do about 25000 tons of overall produce and uh, we have high gross margins and because of that we are operating margin profitable uh so of course what that means is that we still have to cover the overheads which is your management engineering and so on and it doesn't cover marketing uh but beyond that we are fully operating margin profitable uh, so that's the model we operate you keep talking about high margins in the space and you also said that fish has broadly what are margins like on the poultry side and the fish side so broadly uh poultry if you vertically integrate which is what we do we have about 30 32% gross margins uh fish we have about 45 50 to 52% gross margins and we have a blended of about 40% gross margins is it is it is the reason for fish having higher margins simply due to the fact that it's harder to catch fish and therefore like you know it doesn't no one can't like people can't just enter like you know and do more of it like as opposed to poultry where it's easy to farm chickens it's purely because of the arbitrage i spoke about right so what we are leveraging is two things we are cutting off the middleman in the entire exercise and we are also cutting off and we are getting geographical arbitrage right so if we are getting 20% higher price to the fisherman and farmer but yet we make money because in the example i told the you earlier three step auction process the 100 rupees versus uh, 120 versus 250 the bangalore market will be priced closer to the higher of the two prices now we are able to pass that on to our consumer so you would see that there's a huge amount of price advantage if you buy from us as a consumer right compared to other players our positioning is more mass market we are not trying to be a starbucks we are very happy to be a coffee day 
or a chai point and that's our brand positioning that's really how we think we can address the broader markets but what would that even be in the space of meat and fish what would premium positioning be because isn't technically everything to a certain extent like commoditized like you know if you're buying chicken breast or you're buying chicken legs or you're buying a particular type of fish etc so could anyone claim to be operating like as the starbucks of meat and fish and if so what what might they be doing or offering i think there are a fair amount of competition uh, and most competition would position more premium and uh, and you know and it will reflect in all aspects of it right it's like a packaging for example if you use a box based packaging you're talking about 30 rupees for package i got it so and the 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 commodity the product is the same it's the experience or the packaging yeah, etc which can and push up that can be pushed up but at the end of the day uh, you know we measure our end to end so at least bark you know whenever in his knows all school he would tell me this and this is controversial is that all this nps stuff is bs uh, you know because it's net promoter net promoter score or is bullshit is bullshit uh, the only <laughs> only metric that matters is retention we look at our category and we find 35% blended overall retention obviously 96% plus for people who purchase at least three times and that's really the only north star we go in and we see at the end of the day if you give great quality product at a mass market price india your retention will be higher if you try and sell mutton at you know 1100 rupees per kilo versus 800 rupees per kilo that we sell you will 800 rupees product if it is great quality will have higher retention versus 1100 that just physics of how you know uh, consumers will work right and that's really what we have done we have gone really mass market the brand that we built is a value brand that you know uh, while is premium from no chemicals no antibiotics and we provided with certifications pricing is very very accessible and that's and the only way you can do that because this is a sure shot strategy to bankrupt companies right you give premium products and then you don't charge it premium the only way to do that is to do the heavy lifting and create that unfair advantage the moat which is really what we've built by going backwards and vertically integrate with fishermen and farmers and that's really exactly what we've built we've built an unfair advantage shan what percentage of your sales or revenue comes from the fish side and the poultry side 42% of what we sell is from fish 38% is from poultry And has then, that mix changed over time yeah poultry has increased fish has become what used to be about 50% uh, but as we entered you know delhi and you know a lot of the larger cities and so on the overall so mix the pie is growing the, pie is the growing. poultry side pie is growing at a faster, faster rate is because you know the young millennials in particular are much more attuned to poultry first in some of the northern cities in southern cities we see you know fish is still the largest part of the pie how many employees are there at fresh home so directly uh, on the platform about 4000 people uh, but if you consider you know the farmers who work with us and others about 17 to 20000 people how fast are you growing we've grown about 10 times in the last 4 years in the last 1 year we've been focused very heavily on getting to bottom line profitability so we're now growing at about 40 to 50% year on year how much venture capital have you raised to date about 250 million dollars including Now I must congratulate you I think um last week you announced your most recent fundraise right just over That's correct, yeah. 100 million dollars 104 million dollars And what was your most recent valuation can you disclose that <laughs> No I can't okay. but I can tell okay. you that it was 2 to 3 times higher than the previous round What was the previous round 
I think uh, Rohin uh, one of the things that we should <laughs> you let that right? one, one of the things that we should take away <laughs> is that I've seen companies uh, sort of being described originally and glorified as unicorns and then I think media talking to them about cockroaches <laughs> I'd like to be preferred to be known as a proficon which is someone with really high scale and and have already returned you know or are returning is a con part deriving from unicorn or is it something I, I will leave it to no, you no, and no, the I'm just, and the audience I'm just pulling you like that's all right uh how old are you i'm 45 uh i know you're married and you have kids like you know do you have one kid two kids i have three kids uh, how old are they i have a 15 year old uh and i have a you know a 10 11 year old and a 7 year old how many co-founders are there today at fresh to home we have eight co-founders so we have had zero attrition in our management in team in your co-founder team not just not just co-founders in the management team since we started so we are essentially a, a bunch who's you know uh, are known devils to each other so to that end you know we are essentially uh, be, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses and these are some of the best talent you can find right it was the city of zinga the chief jayesh it was the chief data scientist neel uh and a bunch of others from various different disciplines uh and uh it is a bunch that have always hung together have started companies together and we are still together uh, one of them is two of them are actually my classmates as well tell us about yourself what's your background how did you end up as an entrepreneur or, or how do you end up at zinga or how do you end up at support what do you study where do you grow up so i grew up in uh, in dubai uh actually did my uh you know from my 1984 to 95 i was in dubai my father is a doctor and he is a doctor in one of the larger hospitals there so you know the, the family was there so i understand that part of the world and also if you've seen some of our investors right we do have a fair amount of middle east investors and who have really supported us and i understand the culture and also launched there Uh, after that i did my engineering in model engineering college uh, in uh, cochin uh, where i did my btech in computer engineering i passed out in 99 uh, 99 onwards i have been in the valley in san francisco and initially i was a you know with a body shopper who or a services company which uh, you know took me into the thing it was a great company but i was there working for number of clients uh, and then i went into support.com uh, which was one of their first clients so i was an engineer in the valley so- Yeah your dad was a doctor was it like a family of doctors was yes, it Yes we're a family of doctors my sister yes, is a yeah, doctor I mean I had no idea and like I <laughs> just guessed it so was there ever any expectation that you'd be a doctor as well Interesting I had cracked the uh, you know the Kerala entrance exam uh, and I had joined model engineering college and uh, th- at that time I wasn't sure I was going to be actually going to be a doctor as well and then I'd been a month into my engineering uh, and at that point of time there was this entrance exams in in Kannur or so in Trivandrum actually and uh, I had to actually take a bus in the night to reach there the next day morning there was a cricket match where Sachin Tendulkar was playing against Australia if i remember correctly and he was hitting sixes in in Sharjah there was a sand dune in the town i got so engrossed in it and uh, i missed the bus This is actual real story I'm not making it up. <laughs> My father still teases me for it. And uh effectively at that point I'd made up my mind already I've done this engineering there's less to study here. It's really uh the other stuff is going to take a long time. Very lo- rational yeah. choices yeah. as a you know <laughs> youngster right? Yes, very rational uh, completely unplanned choices. Uh so then I was in the valley in from 99 onwards. 
uh, and I've been with first I was with a company called support.com used to make write uh, cryptographic libraries you know open SSL things like that I was an architect uh, and used to work with the likes of uh, you know some of the large government clients you know NSA Lockheed Martin and so on we were making security software for them uh, after that I grew I went in one fine morning I wanted to do sales uh, so I went and asked my co-founder at uh, that time Mark and Kadir and others uh, you know, can I go and do some sales? So they said, you're an engineer, you're a geek. What would you do with sales? And especially with white Americans uh, in that and, particular and why, side. Why did you want to do sales? I, I've always been fascinated at selling, right? Uh, and I r- really like to uh, do business ideas. And I've done a tremendous amount of non-traditional businesses, some of which work, some of which don't work. Uh, examples are I've started a gold factory <laughs> way back in time. Well, fits your <laughs> Kerlite, <laughs> Dubai. <laughs> I don't know if it fits that, but uh, that's a long story to discuss. That Then eventually they spinned off to being Malabar Gold right now. So it was actually quite successful, but I didn't stick with it. Long story short, I, I've always done crazy things. And uh, so and I wanted to do sales. And here I was uh, in the valley. I was barely out of college, a couple of years. I really knew my tech jobs, but I had no idea about selling. I ended up being their uh, one of their most successful uh, sales guys. Uh, so I basically I was able to pitch without any BS, and I was just get straight into sort of their technical problem and able to solve that, right? Because you were a developer. Yeah, and, and I didn't need were. to do whining and dining and playing golf and so on. And most importantly, you'd never end up <coughs> going and promising something which was not built or which would be hard to build because you'd know. That's not true. I would always do that. Oh, you did that? In the early so days, you were, you were in the of, valley yeah. when there was boom. You had to pretty much, you know, imagine the product in a napkin. Uh, you had to sell it even before it was built. And then you had to think about how do we really build it, right? That's really how things work. Uh, well, in at any least startup you world. knew how to build it. Yeah, I as knew opposed how to, to someone that's true. who did not have a background that's correct, that's in correct. engineering. And then I moved on and I the company grew. We became public. Uh, I became their enterprise uh, CEO. Uh, this was way back in 2006. And then after that, I have uh, a bunch of us, the same guys who are with me today, Jayesh, Neil, uh, you know, the entire group, did another company called Debox. I have a question here. And this is something that some of our listeners have asked us again, which is, what's your advice about finding co-founders so I know it's a very generic question but considering that you've eight co-founders and a bunch of others who've been with you like you said right what would you tell someone who's considering starting out or is an early stage in the career that how do you end up finding co-founders so entrepreneurs uh, you know are people whose primary job right is to find people I mean you you can be a product manager you can but at the end of the day you have to understand people and the best place to find people is in your uh, college, right? That's really when you bond, you know the potentials, you know what the person can do or in your early days in work. So I spent most of my early days, you know, creating the network that I did today. And the guys who've been with me then or are people whom I found along the journey are still with me, right? And that's just every opportunity that you have to talk to somebody is a networking opportunity. And uh, the advice to entrepreneurs is to cherish those people uh, don't treat people just for the immediate gain or immediate project or immediate what it is. They will come in handy some way or the other. And I've had this multiple times, right? When we have been stuck with something really drastic, you would find somebody in your network who can unlock that for you. 
And the advice to uh, entrepreneurs is to find those earlier in your journey. Don't actively look out to them. They'll come when you really start out. I've typically found people who are hands-on to be the best uh, people to take along with the journey. What's your definition of success when you were in your 20s? What was your definition of success when you were in your 20s? So, uh, if you reflect back and and I can uh, and and when I thought about it then, the definition of success at that point of time uh, was to be you know rich and famous and so on, right? It was like everybody else. As I became older, uh, the definition of success has changed quite a bit, right? It What was, is it today? So today it's really about figuring out uh, impact. now whether it's an impact and it still can have a monetary aspect to it it could be impact in terms of an uh, a return to a shareholder but it is also impact to you know the community or the system i'll give you a very tangible example i don't want to be uh, preachy so i had all the options in the world to be in san francisco to be in the us and i was doing gaming companies there was i think i was the largest ipo in the valley right after google uh but i wanted to come back to india one you know uh, you know i missed my fish curry and rice but more importantly uh i also wanted to be with something that my parents and my family could see that impact like my dad and mom and all have relocated back here they they can see and relate to what i'm doing there right if i'm in support.com or in the early days when so i was success doing success is tangible as opposed to abstract it's that's correct. so so what you're saying is that uh people here saying that oh my son shan he's in the us he works for this tech company he's really successful but beyond that you don't really like and yeah. and you to- might be and even even beyond that like if you're developing something on crypto with uh, bitcoin and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, peppered in yeah it's hard to explain that to my dad it's hard to explain that to a normal person i would person. argue it's hard to explain to anyone <laughs> <laughs> but let's leave it there yeah and then uh, actually i had this entrepreneur pitch me that uh, crypto is like tcpip and all that stuff but i'll i'll, I'll leave that stuff but uh, uh, and then secondly when you when i actually physically met matthew the first time i was sold not because of uh, you know the business in general because i didn't know how the business would pan out it was really that life that he was doing uh, directly interacting with the fish it's hard life it is really 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 hard life it was enjoyable like you speak to these people there so the the problems that i've had to deal with in my corporate life is am i going to get 7% raise this year or 15% raise this year can i solve attrition problem here what is the bell curve and all that stuff here people are actually working out like can i get two square meals uh, during the two months when there is a trolling season it is an incredibly hard set of problems you're solving and once you get into that problem and that problem can also be a business which earlier i could not do it is quite invigorating right and it is very very different from what i have done before and i love it for that how do you manage to still keep in touch with that aspect of problem solving once your organization fresh to home has become so big because now you will be spending most of your time whether you like it or not on the bell curve and on retention and on attrition etc right actually to be fair we don't we don't have and spend too much time on that the reason being is that the way that we have organized the company and something that i have learned from zinger uh is that uh we have organized the company so that each person is a ceo for uh his or uh, own areas right and i'll just give you an, a very specific example so for example uh we've got uh 70% of our time that is doing day to day stuff we then have something called as fth labs which is 30% of people's time 
and you as a ceo which you know in each unit there would be a ceo so if you are let's say a, a delhi gm then you would be the gm would be the ceo for that particular area are you organized jo- uh, uh, is your leadership organized geographically it's functionally geographically, geographically. geographically. So we do have functional leadership but it's all separate teams because if at 4000 people it's very hard to organize that separately and each pnl is owned directly by the uh, geo head right and also by the other people there so people truly imbibe this whole be your ceo now last year was difficult right last year was difficult not because of us in particular but the ecosystem was difficult we did have uh, and most people saw the year before in 2021 salaries were through the roof there was a lot of attrition we saw zero attrition uh materially we have zero attrition in our management team and it's because of the way we have structured it ourselves i mean we are not flashy individuals uh, you know as the co-founders probably because of the <laughs> the number of gray hair that we have but uh in general people uh, feel part of the whole uh family they have their own targets they don't get micromanaged and they uh, a very interesting way in which we set goals is they set the goals themselves and then they propagated uh, downward back up so we have okrs those okrs are not top down since and, when have you been running okrs uh, since uh, the time that mark introduced it way back in zinger in uh, 2000 also that means you've had okrs at fresh to home almost since inception the cultural dna is very similar to zinger So uh there was a time when we were like 20 people sitting in a small chocolate fa- factory back in San Francisco and we were doing I guess 5 10 million dollars of revenue and then uh number of games especially Farmville grew to be large hits in 2 years I think we hit more than a billion plus dollars of revenue Farmville alone was a billion dollars plus revenue and there was no way to scale a company of 20 50 people back to 3000 4000 people in 2 years time without this kind of a organization so we've been doing uh you know the be your own ceos which essentially means two things one you have to set goals those goals have to be bottoms up so the ceos themselves and their teams who are also ceos have to bring up those goals and propagate it ourselves they have to commit to it and versus the company forcing it down there give me throat. an example of an example would be for example if you're in let's say a particular geo Uh, you would have two of your goals that are related to running the company right in a steady state fashion like revenue retention or whatever that goals is and you will get 100% and it's a, and, and these okrs are tied to compensation otherwise it's very hard to sort of do that and then you will get 100% of your pay if you're doing if you hit these two mainstream ones but the system will force you to do another two so there are total four okrs and then you would get 140 or 200% or 160% of your pay if you hit those now those are stretch goals these are moonshots and these moonshots you're free to do and you're also free not to do it and then you can be you can be a steady performer who achieves what your first two two out of four examples of these moonshots for us was contract farming so for example uh, when we originally started we only started marine fish and auctions we didn't have a way of getting into the contract farming now contract farming is about 30% of our overall volume operates at 60% gross margins and it's a great new business right we've also done similar stuff across and this the was board. something that came up as a moonshot bet but by the team not by me or not by the management team it was not a top down push and across the board we have these moonshot bets and uh, and this is this is great in good times but it works the best when things are bad right when the you know the ecosystem is bad and i've heard a number of colleagues go through this in the last uh, sort of 2 years or so 1 and 1/2 years or so right the team is very cohesive they stay with you 
it is for them it's not just a, a a company to work for for a pay because they are getting to define rules and it has got goods and bads if you don't do it well you could leave dead bodies running and that's possible uh there could be friction centrally this could be between the geos all of those things are side effects of uh, you know not doing it properly but uh it is an area where you could see a huge amount of growth if you have the right people and the wrong people will leave for a period of time on their own right that so, was my next yeah. question that culturally how do you deal while while it's all right to say that you can be as ambitious as you want or as stable as you want often what also happens in organizations is that let's say someone who's chosen to execute on two stretch goals and achieves it and is rewarded like you know for it it can lead to resentment in other people who may not have chosen to kind of do that and therefore but at the end of the day and and that leads to cultural it does uh, not if it is transparent hmm. so our okias are in a single sheet that is visible to everybody so unlike other places okr reviews are not private if you the way you process the okrs and you review it is publicly available to everybody this is again something that i had started in zinger we would hire young product managers you know out of business unit i mean uh, lots of different places give them like 5 or 10 million dollars of pnl to run with and they swim or sink and uh, and it's very darwinian in nature in the sense that Uh, because the results are very public no there is no sense of resentment because everybody else knows what somebody else has performed right and that uh, darwinian nature can be good and bad but when it's good it really works and the company becomes very cohesive and i've seen that across at least uh, across you know i don't know 10 15 years right now right where i've run multiple of my companies in the same way an extension of this what kind of a person is likely to succeed at fresh to home so the uh, person that would be uh, likely to be succeeding in fresh to home is somebody who knows that the larger game is going to be longer term uh, and and somebody who also understands that short term flashiness right whether it's you know i don't know three times a meal uh, in a day which interestingly enough i had introduced in zinger uh, michelin chef and all that stuff uh, or others don't matter in the grand scheme of things right and they have to look at it from a bigger picture where they will grow with the company but they have to be entrepreneurial so if you are not entrepreneurial if you are not ready to take a risk and if you and most of our folks that we hire are been previous entrepreneurs themselves and people who you know are ready to try and fail but fail fast like you can't try like uh, you know 6 months to a year to get an idea of, uh, to be failure we'll look at it in 3 months or 6 months time you either make it or you break it there is also people the kind of people who join fresh to home are people who are okay with chaos we don't have despite our 7 years you know in the in this thing we are still very chaotic right there is no fixed rules there is no process there is unlikely that you will find a very structured orientation uh, you will have to figure out this yourself but the on the flip side you will get huge amount of independence so much independence that it will scare you right you will essentially be the ceo of that unit but you will be gauged based on that if you're not able to deliver results you will automatically have peer pressure and you will leave on your own and that's typically how it works what's your best kept secret about finding talented people because you did say earlier that one of the most important things for an entrepreneur is finding people or so these people who have gone through a you know interview session with me would you know find me asking things like you know why did thousand monkeys 
cross the puzzle and things like that. But and uh, even at sort of senior VP level people, uh, I would make them write some code if they are in engineering, of course, of course, not in sales or the others. And I would go through the code myself with them. Some people will get perplexed by it. Uh, the idea is not for them to be hands-on, but uh, the people that I expect to work on should get into the weeds and get into what's going on, right? Uh, and I expect my head of sales who, you know, unfortunately may not understand SQL and may not be able to do it, still be able to poke around, understand what's exactly going on behind the scenes, go to the numbers. Uh, I expect my product managers to be extremely hands-on at a lower level, you know, measure every aspect of, you know, the car, nar, or rar, these are how I measure attention. So being hands-on and being your own CEO, which all boils down, is a core part of how what I look in people. And you would hear that very strongly from people who worked with me. I'm also a people's person. In the sense, at the end of the day, my relationship with people goes whether they are in, with us or without us. And I always make sure that we stay connected in some shape or fashion. It might be some small gesture, and I value that a lot. Do you have any great open-ended questions that you ask people during interviews? <laughs> I do ask a lot of open-ended questions. I typically ask creativity questions. Uh, Give us examples. An example? Uh, I don't know, I typically ask about, you know, uh, you have a, a, a large uh, aircraft that you've just stolen mid-air and you are asked to find the weight of this aircraft. You know, and you can't use traditional weighing balances because weighing balances would break. And then you got to figure this out. So it's fascinating to see how different people approach so this problem. problem solving, like, you know, unstructured problem. Unstructured problem solving are the, are the key elements that I like to gauge people on. And it's, it's fascinating because... Uh, I have seen amazing responses and I continue to be getting new, new ideas, right? Those, the last one was somebody who told me that, uh, you know, uh, just like you are able to find the way to the baby in the mom's womb using a ultrasound, why don't we do an ultrasound of the whole, <laughs> whole aircraft? So it's just fascinating uh, what people come up with. I like those great ideas. I like those, uh, you know, energy flows. That's really what keeps us energized. We do know uh, as co-founders that, you know, uh, we know that we are, uh, we've gone through many of these ideas and, and we can only get growth if we figure out how to kill our current stable business with something else that will be new in the same domain. Hopefully we don't kill it too drastically. So we always look out for those ideas. So you're looking for creativity, problem solving and hands-on execution that's correct. and i'm connecting it back to that earlier theme you talked about being your own ceo and independence and chaos so essentially if you if i put all of these together you're essentially looking for people who are self-directed creative who are or also who are entrepreneurs yeah you kind of describing yeah, many yeah. of the things which are essentially yeah. entrepreneurs. We're, we're looking at entrepreneurs that's what we do what's your span of control how many people report to you uh, I don't have, if, I mean, the, I'm first among the equals with the co-founders, so they don't report to me, but they report to me, essentially. Uh, but beyond that, I don't have anybody reporting to me. So the co-founders are all, I'm assuming, functional leads in, in different areas. Yeah. So we've got somebody who's handling. I, I don't, but yet I'm omnipresent in, <laughs> in this whole uh, system, but I don't have people reporting to me beyond that. Do you believe you are should be, can be replaceable at your company? Absolutely. We should be at any point in time. But at the same time, 
the I have seen uh, I have seen the script play out in multiple different companies, right? So in any companies where I have seen the founder CEO being replaced before market product maturity is met, it leads to absolute chaos. I've seen that across my first company. I've seen that across multiple different companies. So how would you define market product maturity? So I think uh, in our scenarios, it would be to be fully profitable uh, and essentially EBITDA profitable. And uh, also seeing, uh, you know, a stable growth rate going forward. So once that is re- reached, you're saying that? You have to then figure out a, a corporate CEO to be able to scale you to the next level. Is there a time when CEO should think about stepping back? I think a CEO should think about stepping back when you're not growing fast enough or when you're not able to hit the shareholders' needs for that, right? And you have to be cognizant of that. Because at the end of the day, you as a CEO have got X amounts of time and opportunities and you've tried that. And at that point of time, if it's not leading to a success, you have to be fair to the shareholders, right? And your stakeholders in general. How do you balance that with something that you said earlier, which is, say it's a company which has yet to achieve uh, market maturity fit. Yeah. And it's also a CEO who hasn't, like, you know, grown the company fast enough. So I think so... Would a new CEO be able to be any? Because then you're still you still have that risk that the new CEO is inheriting an organization which is still not, in many ways, mature enough. I to think scale, the, right? the most important thing is to make sure that you have enough people who can call the emperor naked, right? And you need to know that whether the company is not hitting those milestones because inherently it's a hard enough problem and you pitched a different idea back to investors, it'll never work. Uh, or is this market going to take longer time and is a different execution approach that is there? If it is a latter, of course, you need to get somebody else who can execute better than you. If it's a former, you've got to figure out, pivot, find new ideas and so on. Uh, and I'm fortunate with uh, my co-founders who can call the emperor naked anytime in the thing. And I'm also fortunate to have a board who is essentially uh, quite supportive in that regard, right? And managing the board is also equally the... Uh, uh, an important function of the CEO. And uh, and the board has to be honest with you. In good times, uh, you don't need a board, right? It's there to pat your backs and say good things and, you know, have good dinners and so on. But when in bad times, and especially when you're in the trenches, that's when you need a board. And I've seen that happen across my career, right? For all the sort of, uh, you know, success that you would see, almost every year, there would be the cliffhanger moment when you have only two months of runway remaining, you will have to figure out options or you'll have to figure out various different things. And that's going to happen to you. And regardless of whatever you tell externally, that is a reality of being an entrepreneur. And the only people who can support you at that point is, you know, beyond your family and everybody else uh, is either your co-founders because they are there to share you and the board. And so it's important for you to be very honest with the board versus using them to pitch them and, you know, pitching stops the moment they enter your company as a board member. Uh, and then you, it's best to give them only the bad stuff uh, because that's the only area that they can help you with, right? The good stuff is you can give it as a general email and others that they can continue to praise you and take credit for it and all that stuff. But reality is that it, it happens only when you start sharing that kind of, uh, you know, bad news with them. And I'm going back to your old question, the moment you have that board and you have that uh, co-founders or others who can tell you that you're not really doing it 
and it's not because of macro reasons or because of idea reasons or pivot reasons it's because of execution that's the point you should quit i want to stick with the board concept because it's 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 for many people the board is a very abstract concept right it doesn't so a couple of like you know uh, threads running along one is of course most people don't think or see who the board is it always remains in the background right like you know the board of directors took a call the board like it's always this abstract concept the people who they are they like most people it's not discussed second what's also happened over the last 5 to 10 years decade plus is that ceos and founders have become much more powerful etc and and they've been able to drive growth valuations fundraising etc so the boards by and large have kind of like you know reduced in importance because as long as like the going is good why upset the founder or the ceo this has made boards even and and we've seen lots of examples in other companies where the boards have not performed the duty that like you know which is sometimes to call you know the emperor naked you you seem to be saying that like you know the board has value and the best way to unlock that value is to kind of use them when you are in trouble and like throw the bad news at them instead of marketing to them and pitching to them is that's that good. something that's I mean, you no, found a lot of success with hopefully i've had I've, this is not my first rodeo so i've done this a couple of times and i've always in the early days it was always pitching right you would only sell the good news back to the board <laughs> and that's just destructive it's just destructive because of two reasons because it's almost like you're seeking the board's yeah. approval or stamp so therefore let's just give them the good news and like you know get it's, it's done with it it's just to make sure that you don't cover up and they can't be productive and they can't do their fiduciary duty which is to help you as a board member unless they know exactly what the problems are and what i've found is that the board really appreciates uh if you tell them what is and it is and it is in it is almost a unkept secret it's not a secret but it is understood that you as an entrepreneur whatever you and the reason why entrepreneurs do this is because they feel like whatever you pitch them and on the reality once they hit it if they are too different then the board will ask you guys why did you pitch me something differently i made an ic case based on that the reality is that the boards are all mature institutional investors they know that the entrepreneur will always be happy years and they know that they will pitch something to you and when you get in it might be slightly different from that hopefully that variance is not too large in which case you have bad impacts and uh, they also see that as the hallmark of a successful entrepreneur they know that a successful entrepreneur has to pitch it to you because eventually when you go public or when you do additional fundraise you need the guy your champion to be able to pitch because that is the hallmark of a an entrepreneur so the thing that to realize is that reset expectations hopefully in within the first or second board meeting on what is the reality guys and you can phrase it you know professionally but at the end of the day they need to be involved and they need to know exactly what is going wrong right and the board has got board members have a fiduciary duty to the company in which case if they are professionally board members they won't have a conflict of interest in representing that back to their funds I'm quite fortunate to have that with us right with Tushar our first uh, board member to Anand from Iron Pillar to Gaurav from Investcorp uh, Nadir from ICD and Ajay from Ascent Capital uh, and a unit from the US government and then Amazon guys and uh, you know all the other board members that we have 
So uh, that is really where uh, at least my success in managing the board was, which is to give them the truth. They are also equally honest with me. They will then call BS whenever you do BS. Uh, and you can have the same conversation. And reality is board meetings are not limited to once in three months time. We have a board group. We are quite active. We speak pretty much every three days or four days. And uh, we hang out a lot together as well, right? Because you need to get to know people as people, not really as board members sitting in a in a board meeting. As both a CEO and a co-founder, how do you avoid self-reinforcing bubbles where you believe in something and you think it's true? And obviously, since you're a CEO and co-founder, a lot of people will agree with you or like, you know, go along with you. How do you avoid these? So there's two ways to do, I mean, two things to it. One is for the first two or three or uh, once you get, until you get to sort of a product market fit, you should have three self-reinforcing bubbles. You can't build a company without self-reinforcing bubbles, right? The CEO or uh, in this scenario, of my business plan or the overall vision has to be set there. Some of it may not be real. And some of this, you may have to project to investors as being real. And that's perfectly okay. And that's really what you need to do. Uh, but once you start, figuring out that you have a large market, you figure out what is the unmet need, which in our scenario was, you know, no okay, fish in particular was the primary category and then no chemicals and no preservative was the unmet need. And once you figure out the product market fit, then the next stuff is to figure out an unfair advantage of some sort. In our scenario, again, the commodities exchange, the ability to get a high gross margin, those are unfair advantage, right? So it could look like a discount to our consumers or other competitors is us with a healthy margin. Once you've got to this stage, then it's very, very, uh, you know, not uh, helpful to be having a self-reinforcing loop. Then you have to figure out one is to have sufficient advisors or people that who can talk to you as an equal. Uh, in my scenario, the the company is structured that way, but in particular, the co-founders or the board or the others who can, you know, call a, uh, you know, a whatever it is. So in many ways, the evolution that you're talking about of the CEO slash co-founder is for the first three years, disregard everything, disregard most things that years. people are telling yeah. you and just stay focused on your vision. And at some point, do the opposite. Exactly. Now start, right? And that yeah. is a step change. That's a, that's a big change. And you have to go through a couple of these cycles before you're able to realize that. Uh, and you may get it wrong. Right, so I'll give you an, a very classic example in Fresh to Home's journey. In the early days, in the first three years or four years, everybody compared us with all of our competition and wanted us to do invest a significant portion of our capital raised to do branding and to do marketing and to do the whole uh, nine yards simply because they felt like we had not spent enough time and energy on that area, which is right. You can only have you can only do certain things or the other. But we were very, very clear in our mind, despite, you know, very strong objections from including investors that we had to build the moat. And we had to really our journey going forward has to be around creating something that has a 40% gross margin and eventually can be operating margin profitable. To do that, you can't really buy from a vendor in the city and give it out. It will neither have the quality nor have the kind of margins that you need. So building that moat took us a long time. It, it was the highest priority. It was written on everybody's walls. And that's really what took us a long time to build. And uh, we did not listen to other people in that time, right? Those are the three years where the self-reinforcing loop that we created, which, you know, we could probably got it wrong as well, uh, was really the focus. But then from that time onwards, right, from the fourth year or so onwards, we had to switch gears. We realized that 
creating a, a brand, creating a, a really good, well-known is equally important for the consumers, right? So then we had to switch gears around that. Now, our early customers and our early adopters all knew us because we were known to be antibiotic-free and chemical-free. And so the word of mouth carried us. Then we amplified it. Then we went to, you know, we, we got Ranveer Singh, we got a brand ambassador, we did the whole large brand building efforts. So it's an evolution and you have to know uh, when to switch gears but till then you have to believe you have to believe in yourself. What are the three four things that consume roughly 80% of your work week? If you were to kind of draw a pie chart what would it look like? So I think majority of my time uh, would go around thinking uh, making sure that people are not living in a status quo. And uh, that happens all the time in the sense that uh, and quite often majority of my time would go around figuring out what are those two, three, four, five things that we can do that uh, will kill our current business. I do want us to kill our current business to be able to build a new business, right? And this Can you give me an example? So I'll give you an example. An example would be that, uh, you know, and some of these examples may not have panned out, so I'm just, uh, just helping you out. Back in 2019, October, we started, we had a we had a great growing fish and meat business, which is still great and growing. Uh, we then... Uh, Sorry, what business? The fish and meat business. Oh, the fish have. and meat business. We also then launched another app called FTH Daily. We looked at uh, other categories that we could go which into. Which was daily groceries. Daily gro- Not groceries in particular. We had focused largely on the fulfilling the original Fresh dream produce. Of, of the whole foods of India. Remember that the original business yes. plan? So we had to get there somehow. And it was an experiment. And uh, and we think longer term, you know, those kind of experiments will lead to figuring out how you now move from the current stable business to a new business. And it has happened across multiple of my past companies, right? I'll, I'll give you, not from a fresh to home example, but I'll give you an example of Zynga. We were the leaders at uh, gaming back in the days, right? In 2009, 10, 11 times. Uh, we were large, we were incredibly large, we grew really quickly. Uh, Farmville alone was generating a billion dollar plus revenues. And at that point of time, we went public. Now, at that point of time, we uh, had a great public offering, but then we crashed. And uh, it took a while for the company to come back. And the reason for that is, you know, we failed to see that web games would move to mobile games. Now, it's easier to say this and, and forecast it, but those days nobody would actually invest in mobile games because this was in 2011-12 when everything was web. But that change happened overnight. It just happened like in literally like two months. And in that two months time, pretty much, sorry, two years, not two months, two years time, everything moved to, again, then we had Candy Crush and we had Angry Birds and others sort of, you know, go up the charts. It took us a good four years after that to catch up. So that is really what, you know, we look at it instantly. So there are multiple different aspects of our business that we look at and we try to innovate. That's why we have the 70-30 time to do that. So when you said that you spend the largest chunk of your time trying to look for things that disrupt your existing businesses or prevent people from getting comfortable, what does that manifest as in terms of, are these meetings, are these discussions, what are these? Like, how do they fit in into your work calendar? This typically is uh, uh, is basically, uh, in my mind, nothing really works remotely. And I, although I'm a, I mean, that is a necessity evil, I physically have to go meet people. 
perhaps because I'm a people person, I like to go to the geography and meet the person in person or have them come here. That's really when the spark happens. Uh, and it's generally in those meetings over a coffee or without an agenda that typically these kind of ideas spark. It all stems from, uh, we'll, we'll write the problem statement down, right? We want to get to, you know, I don't know, X amounts of revenue, Y amounts of bottom line and so on. And then the qu first question will be, can you do it with your current business? And uh, and if so, uh, you know, what else can you do? And typically, almost all of this is an in-person meeting for me. Um, the remote Zoom thing doesn't really work for me for new ideas. Of course, it works for me for running the current executions and reviewing things and so on. But I need people to be with me uh, in person. And I also need to share a meal with them. I don't know why, but maybe because I'm a foodie. But my best ideas come in through when we eat something together. Hmm. That's very counterintuitive and often because when you're, if you're a foodie, aren't you concentrating on the food while eating? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, the, the enzymes and the, uh, you know, the, the love that you get in the food will spark the thought. What are the things that you don't enjoy doing as CEO? So what I don't enjoy as a CEO is actually day-to-day -day execution. Uh, now, I am uh, reasonable at it, uh, and I do have people who know the, how to do that better than me. Uh, but at the end of the day, I have to step in when there is a very dire ex uh, you know, escalation of some sort. And that's not an area that I feel is a really good use of my time, but it has to be done. Uh, I am hands-on uh, and certain areas you have to show people that you that it can be done by showing it to them, right? People can tell you a number of reasons on why a certain thing cannot be done. And at some time, if the CEO is doing it hands-on, at least for like uh, for a week or a month, then finally it gets done. I don't enjoy that, but that's necessary part of what I do. Anything else? But beyond that, nothing much really. I enjoy most part of... What are your about fundraising? A lot of founders f don't necessarily find that they're not good fulfilling. founders if that's the case because fundraising is a necessary part of but doesn't mean you have to enjoy it oh yeah enjoying <laughs> that's true uh, I don't necessarily enjoy it but at the same time it is a big part of uh, early stage company and it is important to realize that it is needed uh, I don't know if I enjoy too much media though that's not probably something I enjoy I'm, I, I can be an extrovert when needed but generally I'm an introvert when people come to you with a problem or something which is broken, how do you respond to them in a way that gets them to take ownership and fix it instead of rolling up your sleeves and fixing it yourself? So you only ever roll up your sleeve and fix it if the other person is resisting what you're saying, right? And if you have a, a realistic view that it can be fixed or you've seen proof point that it has been done elsewhere, and then you have to get your team to see it. That's the only time you would go hands-on and do it. But other times it is always about uh, basically uh, taking people out of the weeds because people will come to you with sort of the minor nuances of why certain things can be done or not, rolling it up at a bigger level. And we do this through the OKR process. So in the OKR process, it's not at a very granular level. So the first time would be around, you know, defining a theme for it right it's basically be the you know uber of x the elevator pitch so that would be the theme at every quarter on a particular area and we would change the whole tone so that it is as if the gms or the the ceos of our own organizations pitch to the board right uh, 
So, and the co-founders are the board of the organization. And essentially, that's the way that we have positioned it. And it's not just the co-founders, there'll be other GMs as well, or other people as well. And in that process, uh, people understand and uh, are immediately, you know, recalibrate themselves to focus on sort of the, the top one, two, three, or four priorities. And then they figure out how to hit there, those execution level details. Uh, then they figure that out with their own team. And then there is quarterly reviews. And those quarterly reviews, the most interesting part of the way that we do it is it's done in a public forum. And uh, we share that data publicly. So more than anything else is the peer pressure uh, really allows the team to look at and perform uh, based on what they should do. But it's completely okay to fail in our environment as well, so long as you fail fast. What are your two to three most critical meetings each month? So I would generally have, uh, you know, a weekly, uh, what we call as a numbers review. This is again an old Zynga habit. Uh, and we look at every single piece of numbers and we are very hands-on with it, even at my level. And uh, generally the revenue owners or the PNL owners would have looked at a certain uh, data point or a feature. We would look through everything, including A-B testing, different different cohorts of that, different variations, what could have done if you did this or if you didn't do that. And we then surface it so that it's the best practices across the multiple geos. That's the most critical meeting that I attend, and I attend that once in a week. That's probably the only meeting that I attend. Uh, the other meetings are all spontaneous and created. Then once in a month, I have a meeting with the board. And that meeting is not really a formal board meeting. That is once in a quarter. But this is much more of an informal business review kind of meeting. And that happens once in a month. If I were to ask you to list down the top two or three failures that Fresh to Home has made. Could be anything, stuff that you started which didn't work out or missed opportunities. What might they be? There are tons of those, right? So uh, one is, you know, we, uh, as much as I uh, build the moat around the sourcing side, in the early days, we had not built the brand moat. And our sort of look and feel, UX, uh, appearance, consumer ex experience in general, beyond the product, the product was amazing, the fish was great, the meat was great, was not really uh, world class. And that was a missed opportunity. Uh, because one of the things that uh, we see is that in those early cohorts, people who are connoisseurs of the food are really liked with us and they've stuck with us. But if you speak to a VC, for example, right, and at least in that cohort of users, you would not see too much love for the product experience piece of it. But it has changed over time. That was a missed opportunity that took some time for us to do. So from an from a food community who really like good food at mass market prices, they love us. Uh, from uh, people who are looking at it from a premium segment, they may not like us as much. Now we've put a, a good balance between the two. So we've solved that problem. That'd be a, a good example. Uh, and then we were guilty of trying too many things at, uh, in the early days. Right? We did try, you know, the Whole Foods vision was there from the beginning. And we tried to do all of that Whole Foods stuff in the early days. And it was not uh, successful. Then we focused. Now we are getting, and we are still on the same firm vision, but we are doing one step at a time. Another one that really didn't work for us was B2B. Uh, so, you know, if you've looked at the business plan, the business plan, original business plan, uh, thought that we sh should do B2B first to get to B2C, otherwise you will not have the purchasing power to do that. It was a great idea, but practically never worked. In the sense that... Sorry, help me understand that. 
so so uh, you sell to um, restaurants, restaurants hotels the, the so horeca on. segment as it's called just because we have that kind of sourcing power across these harbors so mm. we thought that we can give more volumes to the fishermen once we get more volumes from the hotels great business plan and in practice everything worked and we started doing that business uh, but we realized that you know what was maybe 10 days payment terms and end up being 3 months 6 months 12 months sometimes and sometimes you don't get paid and so the cash flow and the working capital risk was just tremendously high there's great business from gross margins net margins on paper but you don't get money in time and so we had to stop that how do you assess the risks from not doing certain things like you said there are always so many things that you could do as a company and you choose not to like i mean in your earlier example you chose consciously to not invest in brand in the early years and then you came back to it right like so as an entrepreneur when you're assessing there are these five things that we could do but if you don't do like is do you have a model on how to assess those risks do you have an approach that you typically look at yeah because i come from the gaming world this is something that we do all the time right and uh, this is what we call as you know shots on goal and so for example before we launched farmville there was at least 10 15 different games in different categories that we would try and then the way that the organization would do it is you know if you try to do everything you will not be able to have enough resources and uh, people to do that so we have uh, what is called as green lighting this is actually a, a gaming terminology so a game can get green light in same way a new idea can get green light in different terms so when you start a new idea it will typically be uh, what we call as 1090 which means that you will now this is not actually 10% but 10% of your bus available resources will go into that new idea and then 90 is basically uh, will go to your mainstream activity then you will review it after a quarter and if you achieve whatever you set out to be achieved or you didn't better then from 1090 it'll go to 2080 and then once it hits 3070 then you're funded so this is how all games go through right you will to launch like a farm will you would have done some other farming game in philippines first and you would have given it x amounts of stuff and this actually was in philippines before farm will then we did something called harvest life in a different name in a smaller market just to test how that worked out then it came from 90 10 to basically 80 20 and then 70 30 we follow the same approach at fresh to home right we have multiple different ways in green lighting it so that doesn't answer your question on how do you know whether you know, what will pan out which nobody can tell you whether what will happen if you don't do it so we actually do it and we prioritize those key ideas but we do it with limited time and resources if it works great if it's not we move on to the next idea would i be correct in assuming that the presence of okrs yeah is what allows a lot of people at fresh to home to be able to hypothesize clearly because it's not easy in a standard corporate environment to hypothesize on new bets yeah etc because it's just not something that like you know is is very is okay as the reason why are That's people correct. able to That's do correct. that you have to be amorphous and ta- intangible in terms of the direction you're going but at the same time you need to measure it right and the way that we measure it is basically having a yearly kind of goal but at the same time quarterly goals just to see where you're realistic around it and reality is that you may end up trying to do something but you may end up elsewhere and that's perfectly okay but at least having a quantitative framework to measure that is important and okay as do that for us 
do you have any methods or like you know how do you essentially observe changing customer behavior considering that it's so important to the business that you run so we are very anal about data and uh, like i said you know nps is bs but actual retention is uh, is the only non star that we follow and we have a fairly intricate uh, product management process you know i was you know fortunate enough to be part of some of the best product management minds uh, in the early days and i brought that knowledge back to india i've hired a ton of product managers who all have started their own companies and so on so one of the things that we do is to cohort the users back into three different categories the first is what we call as current users or cur right this is basically the people who are your golden cohorts now depending on what time window that you take you see the repeat behavior of your ready steady users and how do they come back you know on a week on week basis we don't uh, we use retention cohorts at a monthly level only for investors uh, practically for running the company we use weekly uh, retention metrics because with monthly waterfall retentions what happens is you know the problem at the end of 12 months right and you want, can't really do anything about it but if you use weekly retention cohorts if there is something broken then you can fix it and then we also cohort that into new users returns so people who are new users and they've tried us and then how do they return back this actually tells you how the platform or the product behaves for a completely new users that are there that is called what we call as nur new user return and then we have lapsed users returns people who in that time window have not come back and if they come back what kind of experience do they get so then that's what we call as rar or returning users return and then between nur and kar and rar we know what is a rate we can know what kind of percentages do you see in these three different cohorts and every single feature that we roll out whether it's a new feature new product new announcement we measure the impact on these three different cohorts at a geography level right each geo and we and this is what we review in our numbers review meeting so we have a very rich product management culture and that product management culture along with data and how to view the data uh, which you know we have perfected over a period of time across the silicon valley is really what allows us to see consumer patterns demographies and so on and it also allows us to some extent separate out sort of marketing and sort of fomo in general versus actual data Tell us about your kids and their view of the world. <laughs> My older daughter is Dua. She's uh, in tenth standard. She's having a board exams today. So I hope uh, <laughs> her view of the world is <laughs> very, very focused on very <laughs> on the tenth standard. My middle son Momin is basically uh, is trying to be a football player at this point. I don't think he has figured out too many world stuff. and my uh, youngest daughter is 7 uh, year old yumna she's actually uh, uh, you know trying to be she's her view of the world has changed from being a you know a peacock to a train driver to now a gymnast so we'll figure out where it is what has parenting taught you about yourself so i think parenting has taught me that i don't spend as much time as i need or i should with them which i have now changed over a period of time and uh, also i have seen you know by the questions that they ask like i tell them a story pretty much every night uh, even to my 15 year old and uh, it allows me to uh, see you know and appreciate what really are the things that matter and when i spend time with them right and also with my wife and my family and uh, my parents and everybody else how do you rate your own performance as a ceo and as a parent on a scale of 1 to 10 <laughs> i 
I think as a parent, it would be seven to eight. Uh, as a CEO, maybe five to six. Uh, that would be where it would be. Are there any hobbies or interests that you have that others may find quirky? Uh, I don't know whether I have. Uh, I one of my you know weirdest hobbies is actually uh, doing not, and it's always business or some idea or something else, but. Uh, it's been non-traditional in the sense that uh, you know I've once in a while way back in I think uh, really early in my life I tried to sell shark fin skins for a living. And this is when I was in Dubai. I heard that you know selling the 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 skin of the Arabian sharks are supposed to be really sought after, uh, and in fact it's much more expensive than the meat because it's used to create the you know the recyclable. Uh, sewing needle for surgery, and uh, so we tried. A bunch of us tried to do that as a business. We soon we soon got bashed up by the local goons there because it was really a mafia-controlled business. So I have tried things like that. I've tried that. I've launched a, a a gold factory. I've done lots of non-traditional stuff, but all in these kind of areas. Uh, but apart from that, from uh, currently, what I do is I do a lot of cooking. I like to cook. Uh, I'm a good chef. And I I spend a fair and it, uh, I spend a lot of time doing that at home. So if there were this one dish that you really pride yourself on getting right and getting a ten on ten when you're cooking, what might that be? Chicken biryani. If you were locked for twenty four hours in a room with no internet, what would you do? It'd be perfect for me, right? What I would you I, do? I would sit, think through it. I would you know relax. I would sleep. If you can give me a book on top of that. There would be nothing. What books do you read normally? I read a, a huge amount of books. Uh, now I read everything from you know lifestyle to journals and so on. But uh, I actually like fantasy young kids books like Harry Potter or uh, things like that, Artemis Fowl and so on. Uh, Did you get used to that because you had to read it? No, no. It kids? is that uh, my life is anyway very chaotic, right? Uh, my so brain is. So it's escaping. Is, from yeah, from our brain is always trying to figure it out so i i look at i have add i have attention deficiency disorder so i can't really focus on certain things unless it is for something else that's not connected to what i'm doing and uh, so i actually like uh, you know all of the sort of fantasy books versus anything serious on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy are you with your life i'm quite happy with my life i think it would be about 8 What does personal time for you look like on the so weekends? Personal time is just spending time with kids, right? That's really the and family. That's really the biggest thing that I spend time on. Are there any things that you've tried recently? Anything that you've bought, geeked out on that you're really interested in? So I I would do that earlier, and especially during the early gaming days, I would. But I'm a gamer, so I do hardcore gaming. I do you still to, game? Yeah, I still game. Uh, so I do every single piece of game that you could think of because I am a gamer, right? When do you find the time to do that? Uh, nowadays, it has come down <laughs> quite significantly, but I still can't avoid playing Mortal Kombat with my kids. Or uh, are you a PC gamer or a console gamer? I'm a console gamer, uh, but I have also done a lot of PC gaming. I've done social gaming. I've done mobile gaming. I've pretty much played any game that you would think of. uh so i've spent a lot of time there but these days my a a a peaceful relaxing day to would be to watch an old episode of star trek and then uh, you know uh, just 
stay out of anything that takes my brain cycles do you have any nicknames that you have in within fresh to home that people call you what you're known for or like you know based on your behavior or like you know do you no there's no particular nicknames but everybody knows that uh, when you enter a meeting and once you are entering it something will change in the soul equation so they try avoiding bringing to me until it's a little bit more mature what does that mean well, something so basically what essentially means is that i will typically i have an eye for details so i'll go into some area or some aspects and or i would have some comparison with some other industry so some elements of what they would do will change so they avoid coming to me until the idea is more mature they're clearer thank you so much shan for this conversation it was lovely having you on the show thank you rohin for having me here it's been great talking to you hi it's me again rohin if you haven't rated first principles on your favorite podcast platform till now then now would be a good time your rating no matter how many stars they contain give us a sense of how we're doing add a comment if you want us to look at anything in specific to improve thank you for listening